How far have we come? In this episode, we'll explore some of the ways women have been portrayed in advertisements during the past century. I'm Sarah, and today's episode is The Ad Gaze, 100 Years of Women in Advertising. Over the past century, advertisements have portrayed women in a multitude of ways. In this episode, we'll explore the evolution from barefoot in the kitchen to coaching in the Super Bowl and everything in between. Full disclosure, I based much of the research that went into this episode on two insightful Ad Age articles that discussed the portrayal of women in advertisements throughout the years. If you hear me mention an Ad Age citation, it is likely from one of those articles. If you'd like to see the references used or all the ads that are discussed, please visit giveafuck.net. Give a fuck. Let's begin in the jazz age, the roaring 20s that emerged from their own pandemic to seem pretty damn fun. And for some women, it was. But for others, like Edna, it was heartbreak after heartbreak. In Listerine's 1923 print ad, she was often a bridesmaid, never a bride. This phrase was popularized by the ad, which portrayed women as having but one ambition in life, to marry. But poor Edna had a hard time attracting a man because she suffered from halitosis, aka bad breath, which thankfully Listerine could clear right up. Another ambition of women in the 20s? The perfect girlish figure, of course. Luckily, Lucky Strike was there to help. Lucky Strikes is toasted. The brand's ad campaign, Reach for a Lucky Instead of a Sweet, launched in 1925 and was the creation of legendary madman Albert Lasker, who, according to the book The Cigarette Century, came up with the idea while at a Chicago restaurant where a waiter specifically asked a woman to put out her cigarette. He wanted to make Lucky the brand for women, and he succeeded. Sales of Lucky Strikes increased by more than 300% during the first year of the campaign, according to a Columbia University publication. As we enter the next decade, the 1930s, the girlish figure really comes into play, with the first ads using the strategy that sex sells. According to the Ad Age Encyclopedia of Advertising, in 1931, a magazine ad for Listerine deodorant featured a photograph of a nude woman's back and the side of her breast. Woodbury Soap featured what is thought to be advertising's first full-figure black-and-white photograph of a nude woman, shot by Edward Steichen, in 1936. In the photograph, you cannot actually see any of what would be considered the model's private parts, but if you'd like to check out the ad, or any of the ads referenced in this episode, visit giveafuck.net. Moving into the 1940s, the Second World War is taking place in Europe, and in the US, one of the most iconic women in advertisements is born, Rosie the Riveter. According to the pop history Dig, Rosie the Riveter is the name of a fictional character who came to symbolize the millions of real women who filled America's factories, munitions plants, and shipyards during World War II. In later years, 
Rosie also became an iconic American image in the fight to broaden women's civil rights. However, while many people think that Rosie was created to recruit women into the workforce while the men were off fighting, that's not the real story. While the U.S. government did hire advertising agencies like J. Walter Thompson to create campaigns encouraging women to join the workforce, the iconic We Can Do It poster, featuring a female factory worker showing off her strength, was actually designed for internal use within the Westinghouse company. The poster was created by artist J. Howard Miller and only used within Westinghouse factories to boost employee morale and discourage factory strikes. A different female factory worker, who really was called Rosie the Riveter, was the subject of an oil painting by Norman Rockwell, which was featured on the cover of the Memorial Day edition of the Saturday Evening Post, then one of the country's most popular magazines. This Rosie was intended to encourage women to become wartime workers. In the painting, the background of which is an American flag, Rockwell's Rosie is seated in worker coveralls with her riveting machine on her lap and her foot on Hitler's Mein Kampf. Following the war, due to the copyright, the Rockwell Rosie was largely forgotten, but the lack of legal protection for the We Can Do It image allowed it to have a rebirth. The poster was rediscovered in 1982, and it then started to be associated with women's liberation. In 1994, Smithsonian Magazine featured the image on its cover, and it became a U.S. Postal Service stamp in 1999. The poster has been displayed at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., and remains one of the 10 most requested images at the National Archives. Here's a fun one, Lysol as birth control. Yes, you heard that right. Some listeners might be familiar with the old black and white Lysol ads pushing the disinfecting household cleaner for use as a douche. Well, according to Smithsonian Magazine and the Society Pages, an open access social science project from the University of Minnesota, Andrea Tone, who is a history professor at McGill University, says that these ads weren't frightening women into thinking their genitals smelled badly. Feminine hygiene was a euphemism. Those Lysol ads are actually for contraception. In the United States, birth control was illegal for married couples until 1965, and until 1972 for single people. In her book, Devices and Desires, A History of Contraceptives in America, Tone says that the campaign made Lysol the best-selling method of contraception during the Great Depression. Lysol might have destroyed sperm, but, as you can imagine, it also caused major damage to the inside of women's bodies. Back then, its formula was actually way more dangerous than it is today, and many women died from using it as a spermicide. Oh, and it turns out it wasn't an effective contraceptive either. Conservative societies in the 1950s forced women to return to their traditional housewife role. Women's paid work was associated with war and hardship. Now this period was over, and women were to return to their unpaid work as housewives and mothers, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Some women struggled to adapt to the role desired by a patriarchal society, but thankfully a new miracle cure that promised youthful zest came just in time. Frauengold was a German over-the-counter drink specifically advertised for its calming and mood-lifting effects. In 1953, the tonic was first sold without a prescription in drugstores and pharmacies. It contained 16.5% alcohol and was cancer-causing because of added plant acids. So, the Ministry of Health banned the tincture in 1981. Give a fuck.
Another classic of German advertising is Dr. Eckersbott, Wenn man's Eiligat. After a day behind the typewriter, the female protagonist, Mrs. Renata, hurries home to prepare dinner and a dessert, Dr. Eckersbott's pudding, for her husband. The male speaker states confidently, a woman has two questions in life. What should I wear and what should I cook? Eine Frau hat zwei Lebensfragen. Was soll ich anziehen und was soll ich kochen? While juggling both professional duties and domestic chores in the spot, Mrs. Renata was mostly adored for cutting a good figure in the kitchen. Beautiful, dressed up, beaming with joy, and with a wooden spoon in hand, she embodied the perfect housewife. Portrayed by the actress Tenelori Kramer, she appeared in numerous spots by Dr. Ucke, reaching cult status in the late 50s and beyond. Dr. Ucke states on their website, Mrs. Renata brought Dr. Ucke products into every German household via advertisements and television that reflected the contemporary wishes of consumers. The spots also managed to fit as much sexism as possible into just under two minutes, but we won't mention that for now. In 1968, Leo Burnett created a jingle that went, You've come a long way, baby. Introducing new Virginia Slims. It was part of the now infamous campaign created for Philip Morris's new product, Virginia Slims, a thinner cigarette made just for women. The name Virginia was chosen to convey moonlight, romantic breezes, and rolling hills, Ad Age reported at the time. Turns out, the wife of Philip Morris's marketing director was also named Virginia. You've Come a Long Way, Baby was a successful campaign that lasted over two decades. Throughout the years, the ads evolved but always referenced, or co-opted some might say, the women's liberation movement. In the mid-70s, the brand even sold a toolbox, a literal box for tools, so that women wouldn't have to rely on men to fix things. The headline read, The Virginia Slims Toolkit, because you've got more to fix than your face. While most of the ads are seriously cringeworthy from today's perspective, it's worth noting that the campaign was diverse for its time, featuring multiple black women with natural hair. Attributed, at least in part, to the campaign, Philip Morris's marketing share grew from 0.24% to 3.16% from 1968 to 1990. Women really have come a long way since the campaign's inception. They're now nearly equal to men when it comes to deaths from lung cancer. Moving over to Europe in the late 60s, we get a now famous commercial for the German soft drink Afrikola, which first hit shelves in 1931. By 1968, it was losing to its competitors Coca-Cola and Pepsi. So the brand started searching for a new marketing campaign in an attempt to regain their image. They hired prolific commercial designer and photographer Charles Wilp from Dusseldorf. Approximately 20 deliberately taboo TV spots and print ads with surreal futuristic images began running all over Germany. Perhaps the best-known image from the series is of three nuns. The women are pictured wearing traditional white habits, but also makeup and eyeliner. Behind what seems like frosted glass, they enjoy Afrikola while gazing seductively into the camera. The media reported extensively on the nun scandal, in part because one of them was portrayed by British singer Marianne Faithful, who was Mick Jagger's girlfriend at the time. Conservatives were outraged, and the church reacted with a warning and even implied for a temporary injunction. The Afrikola campaign was conceived as a revolution, it moved away from the classic image of women towards more freedom and self-determination. It was the appropriate advertisement for the basic societal conflict of that time. As hippies and students rebelled against the conservative attitudes, Wilp's images caused a real stir. Give a fuck.
Moving into the 70s, second wave feminism was in full swing and advertising was right there with it. In 1970, a two-page ad in Ad Age declared that the lady of the house is dead. The ad was created by the Caldwell Davis Company, a women-led agency that planned to rebel against moronic, insulting advertising. The ad was created by the Caldwell Davis Company, a women-led agency that pledged to rebel against moronic, insulting advertising. But as women's lib was making moves, sexist ads kept on coming, especially from the airline industry. If Continental's We Really Move Our Tail For You wasn't bad enough, in 1971, National Airlines launched their Fly Me campaign, blatantly using the sexuality of flight attendants to sell tickets. The campaign consisted of print and TV using real national flight attendants, like young, fresh-faced Joe with the headline, I'm Joe, fly me, or the TV spot featuring a flight attendant saying to camera, I'm Maggie, fly me to New York, you'll love my two 747s to Kennedy, fly me. The spot ends with Maggie's cheeky grin and the line, Fly Maggie, fly national. The innuendo was not subtle, nor was it cheap. The campaign cost the brand over 9 million US dollars a year, but it worked. It raised the airline's profile, and National claimed a 23% rise in passengers in the year following the campaign. It also won multiple advertising awards. According to a Jezebel article, the bodies of women flight attendants have long been an integral part of the airline's marketing strategy. In the post-war period, government regulations ensured that fares, routes, and planes were nearly indistinguishable. To stand out, airlines marketed their flight attendants' looks and promised an exciting or erotic in-flight experience. The article also mentions Paula Kane, an activist and former flight attendant with American Airlines, who said pinching and patting by male passengers increased significantly in the wake of the Fly Me campaign. The NOW, or National Organization of Women, objected to the sexist ads, saying they presented flight attendants as a flying meat market and invited passengers to make sexual advances. You think? According to the Wall Street Journal, it was only in the 1970s that advertising finally started speaking to women more routinely as take-charge consumers and independent spirits. And by the late 70s, the advertising industry began to grapple with integrating the traditional roles of women with their contemporary roles. And advertising entered the era of the so-called superwoman, a career-minded female who does it all. According to a 1994 article in the Journal of Advertising Research, in ad after ad, we see the working mother with briefcase in one hand and smiling child in the other. The image suggests that she can easily manage the demands of the job, children, and household all by herself. One of the most iconic campaigns of this era was for the fragrance Enjolie, the eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman. The launch ad featured three beautiful women, one of whom sings, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan, and never, never, never let you forget you're a man. Cause I'm a woman, while certainly not seen as feminist by today's standards, the campaign was created by an agency called Advertising to Women, which was founded by Lois Garachi Ernst to do just that, finally acknowledging women as powerful consumers with their own habits and tastes. Women also made representation progress in a 1983 Jockey for Her campaign, featuring real women in a range of professions, ages, and body types. It struck a chord with women, and within five years, Jockey became the most popular U.S. brand of women's underwear, with 40% of the market share. And now we come to one of the most iconic advertisements of all time, Apple Computer's 1984, starring a woman. Apparently, industry giant Lee Clow of TBWA wanted a woman for the role because he thought she would serve as maximum contrast to the oppressive surroundings, says Steve Hayden, who helped create the ad. However, in 1985, Ad Age reported that the ad came as women's rights groups criticized the computer industry for ignoring women's roles in purchasing decisions. 
Over in Europe, a German campaign whose iconic copy is still often quoted today was launched in 1989. The Drive at a Taft commercial by Schwarzkopf featured a smartly dressed businesswoman flying around the world in a private jet with her perfectly styled mane. Windstärke 5. Das Haar sitzt. Drei Wettertaft. London. Umsteigen bei Regen. Die Frisur hält. Drei Wettertaft. Mit der Concorde über den Atlantik. New York. 30 Grad. Die Sonne brennt. Das Haar bleibt geschützt. Hamburg, 8.30 a.m. Rain again. Perfect hold for hair. Drei Wettertaft. Stop over in Munich. It's quite windy. Perfect fit. Drei Wettertaft. Onward flight to Rome, the sun is burning. Perfect protection, Drivetta Taft. A chic business outfit and three cosmopolitan cities in one day. The Drivetta Taft spots showed a woman who was self-determined and good at her job. The message was well received. The perhaps first ever career woman featured in German advertising was so successful that the commercial aired for several years. After the American model Tammy Hopkins got off the plane one last time after eight years, supermodel Heidi Klum hopped on board to portray the busy world traveler. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention that it was this time period when the term supermodel was gaining prominence. According to Google Arts and Culture, the definition of a supermodel is roughly a highly paid fashion model who balances a worldwide reputation and appearances on the runway in haute couture and multiple commercial modeling gigs. The term supermodel became popular during the 1980s when models started to become celebrities in their own right and demanded higher pay packets. The Big Five was a term used to describe the top supermodels of the day. Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington, and Claudia Schiffer. These women, and others like them, endorsed all kinds of products and brands, from sodas to trucks to jeans to perfume. In addition to supermodel Naomi Campbell, women of color had a representation breakthrough in 1992 when African-American model Tyra Banks began to appear in CoverGirl ads as the first non-white woman used in major cosmetics advertising. Give a fuck. As we move further into the 1990s, model Kate Moss made her debut for Calvin Klein at age 18, wearing nothing on top as she posed provocatively with Marky Mark, aka Mark Wahlberg. The fashionist blog says the androgynously styled advertisement had women everywhere shopping for boy briefs, turned Mark into a sex symbol, and vaulted Kate's career. The ad not only launched Kate Moss, but launched the heroin chic and waif looks as well. As the Guardian newspaper puts it, heroin chic is the provocatively titled mid-90s style of fashion photography that was accused of glamorizing super skinny strung out models. It is characterized by emaciated bodies with pale skin and angular androgynous features. Models often had stringy hair and dark lipstick. This was in stark contrast to the healthy and vibrant look of the original supermodels mentioned earlier. According to Wikipedia, film director and actor Vincent Gallo contributed to the development of the image through his Calvin Klein fashion shoots. The trend was controversial, with Bob Dole, U.S. Congressman and 1996 Republican presidential candidate, saying that the fashion industry was sending a false and deadly message to America's youth that drugs are harmless fun. But it might not have been drugs old Bob should have been worried about. AdAge says research that showed a definitive correlation between eating disorders and advertising gained prominence in the 1990s. Because many models were extremely thin, often two to three sizes smaller than the average American women, 
psychologist, nutritionist, and activist, focus on advertising as contributing to the growing numbers of girls and women suffering from bulimia or anorexia nervosa. The heroin chic trend waned by the end of the 90s, possibly in part to the drug-related death of prominent fashion photographer David Sorrenti in 1997. In 1999, Vogue called Brazilian supermodel Giselle Bündchen's rise the return of the sexy model, and a new era began. Women blatantly cast for their attractiveness were also taking center stage in European advertising at the time. In the late 1990s, frozen foods brand Igloo hired Verona Feldbusch, the former Miss Germany, who rose to fame during her short-lived marriage to German entertainer and musician Dieter Bohlen. A bit of background. In 1961, Igloo launched cream spinach in a cube shape that became an instant staple in every German household. While Igloo remained market leader for almost four decades, by the end of the 1990s, most buyers only occasionally used the product. They put the pack in the freezer and only remembered it when the fridge was empty. Igloo's ad agency, McCann Erickson, was faced with the challenge to make the frozen product top of mind again among consumers. So they embarked on the quest to find a real woman that could portray the housewife of the 90s, young, attractive, sexy, and self-confident. They found Verona Feldbusch, who became spokesperson for several TV advertising campaigns. She embodied the image of a beautiful, cheeky, but not so smart young woman. Her loud temperament polarized. Half of viewers found her annoying, while the other half was enthusiastic about her charm. In the first igloo spot, the viewer watched Verona, wearing a bathrobe and curlers, in a kitchen preparing the frozen spinach. With an it's-so-easy-everybody-can-do-it four-step process, she heats the spinach and still it until it starts bubbling. This blub of the bubbles that she had been waiting for was associated with the product for years to come. Igloo spinach was the one with the blub of cream and Verona Feldbusch stirring it. The agency won an Effie with the campaign for the most economically successful advertising campaign of 1999. The ad age encyclopedia noted by the end of the 21st century, many key positions in advertising were occupied by women, enabling them to exert a major influence on ad campaigns. Some critics of the portrayal of women in advertising hoped this situation would give rise to more positive images of women. The early aughts brought us Dove's industry-changing Real Beauty campaign, which was launched for the Unilever brand in 2004 by Ogilvy & Mather. To quote AdAge, this effort achieved critical acclaim for its portrayal of women just as they are, rather than the superficial, unattainable version of females that had filled magazine and TV ads for beauty products. The campaign not only included women with vastly different body types, but different skin colors as well. Friggin' finally. Two years later, an online film was created as part of the campaign. It was called Evolution and showed a woman transformed into a billboard supermodel through makeup, Photoshop, and the like. The wrap-up, no wonder our perception of beauty is distorted, helped send the video viral and brought the fakeness of the beauty and ad industries into focus. Following Real Beauty was a 2005 campaign by Nike that lauded women's big butts, thunder thighs, and tomboy knees. The launch print ad read, my butt is big and round like the letter C, and 10,000 lunges have made it rounder. My butt is big, but that's just fine, it continues, because those who scorn it are invited to kiss it. Print ads drove to NikeWomen.com, which featured short films of women exercising and discussing their bodies. Unfortunately, not all advertisers got the body positivity memo, and also in 2005, Protein World, a diet shakes and supplements brand, put up out-of-home ads in the UK that went viral for being sexist and promoting an unrealistic image of women's bodies. The ad featured a young, ultra-fit woman in a bikini with the headline, Are You Beach Body Ready? 
The question was immediately followed by the introduction of the weight loss collection. According to Business Insider, many of the ads were defaced and more than 71,000 people signed a change.org petition calling on Protein World to remove them. The UK's Advertising Standards Authority launched an investigation. Although the campaign was deemed not offensive, it was later banned by London Mayor Sadiq Khan for its unrealistic depiction of women. Even so, afterward the company took the campaign to New York where they placed a giant billboard in Times Square and ads on multiple subway lines. Give a fuck. In 2010, advertising was back to showing women in overtly sexual roles in the infamously sexist GoDaddy commercials, sometimes in the Super Bowl, featuring race car driver Danica Patrick or other attractive women in little clothing. Well, Some say the commercial is too hot for TV. How hot is too hot? <laughs> I can show you exactly how hot is too hot for TV. In 2014, Under Armour, a challenger brand to Nike and Adidas, featured ballet dancer Misty Copeland in a very positive way. Copeland was the first black woman to become principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater, and the spot begins with a letter Misty received at age 13 that read, You simply have the wrong body for ballet. It proceeds to show the amazing athlete beautifully dancing and then looking into the camera before the campaign line appears, I will what I want. Also in 2014, a Sport England study showed that in the UK, 2 million fewer women than men play sport regularly, but 75% of women admit that they want to be more active. Based on their responses, women's lower participation levels were due to a fear of judgment. A large proportion of the women said they were put off by anxiety of what they looked like during exercise and their supposed lack of ability. So together with creative agency FCB Inferno, Sport England set out to show what real women look like during training and how badass owning every minute of it is in a campaign called This Girl Can. The launch ad featured women of all ages, body types, and ability levels enjoying different sports. With supers like sweating like a pig, feeling like a fox, and I jiggle, therefore I am, it struck a nerve with many. The ad uses Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak On as a soundtrack, and it was the first time Elliott licensed her music for commercial use. Alongside the high engagement levels, the campaign also had measurable effects on the sport habits of women. The campaign is said to have persuaded 1.6 million women to start exercising, while 2.8 million said that they had become more active as a result of the campaign. This Girl Can was lauded with numerous awards, including several Can Lions. Building on the theme of the first ad, it returned the following five years with new spots, the latest featuring topics like breastfeeding, menstrual cramps, and COVID-19 prevention. Well, it was nice while it lasted. In 2016, we were back to seeing some brutally offensive advertising in Ireland via Sprite's hashtag brutally refreshing campaign. Here are some of the headlines. She's seen more ceilings than Michelangelo. A two at 10 is a 10 at two. You're not popular, you're easy. Ira Square, the first step on your walk of shame. Oof, 
According to a Washington Post article from the time, many people began calling the campaign out of touch, misogynistic, and hashtag brutally sexist. In one disparaging post, the ad campaign was compared to an unwanted picture of male genitalia, disrespectful, unimpressive, and more likely to turn women off. Coca-Cola apologized and removed the online ad that ran on the Irish men's lifestyle website, joe.ie. In 2017, an Audi commercial hit the Chinese airwaves that compared buying a vehicle to finding a wife. In the ad, a bride on her wedding day is manhandled by her future mother-in-law, who is literally inspecting her like an automobile. The groom's mother finally approves of the bride, but as the couple sighed with relief, the mother's eyes fixate on the bride's breasts, suggesting further objectification is imminent. The ad ends with a red Audi driving down the road and a voiceover saying, an important decision must be made carefully. Even today, it seems that some advertisers are still bent on objectifying women. In Australia this year, KFC aired a commercial that showed two young boys ogling a young woman in a low-cut top. As reported in the New York Times, 15 years ago, this ad might have been seen as just another crass marketing pitch leveraging sex to sell a product. But when the commercial recently appeared in Australia, the backlash on social media denouncing it as sexist was so vociferous, it prompted KFC to apologize. The quick retreat, just before advertising's marquee moment, the Super Bowl, underscored how the boundaries of what's considered acceptable are changing quickly in the Me Too era. Advertisers who for decades relied on the objectification of women to sell products are increasingly wary of taking that approach, aware that many consumers will no longer tolerate abject sexism. Thankfully, Super Bowl ads on the whole have been getting less sexist as of late, in part because of social media campaigns from organizations like the 3% Movement and the Representation Project, a leading global nonprofit organization dedicated to ensuring all humans achieve their full potential, unencumbered by limiting gender norms. The organization had this to say about Super Bowl 54, played in early February of this year. From Carl's Jr. to GoDaddy to Victoria's Secret, brands told us time and time again that a woman's value lies solely in their youth, beauty, and sexuality. And with your help, we told them loudly that we are hashtag not buying it. But in 2020, we saw hashtag media we like from brands like Secret, Olay, Microsoft, and even Budweiser that sent powerful, uplifting messages about equality, representation, and inclusion. One of the spots was for the Microsoft Surface tablet and featured Katie Sowers, the first woman and first openly gay person to coach in a Super Bowl game, and who was a leading advocate for inclusivity in the NFL. I'm not trying to be the best female coach. I'm trying to be the best coach. As you can see, the past decade has seen many ups and downs when it comes to positive and authentic representation of women and femmes in advertising. But let's leave it on a high note. Goodness knows we need it this year. I hope you enjoyed this retrospective on the way women have been portrayed in advertising throughout the past century. This was by no means an exhaustive index, but I hope it provided some insights and historical context. As advertising professionals, we should give a fuck about where the industry has come from so that we can continue to move it forward, whether that is with more minority representation, inclusive attitudes and practices, or authentic, empowering portrayals of women. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for giving a fuck and listening. I'd like to give special thanks to my colleague who was incredibly helpful in researching this wealth of information, Sophie Tomei. Please leave comments and feedback for us at giveafuck.net and find out more about our host agency, Havas Germany, at meaningfulbrands.com. Mm-hmm.
Once again, my name is Sarah, and until next time, keep giving a fuck. Give a fuck.